Okay. So as uh, those of you that were here last week noticed, I, I was not here. I was in Oregon. Uh, uh, both Katie and I are originally from Eugene, so we had a chance to go uh, back home uh, for, for Christmas, which was uh, kind of a re refreshing break. Um, anyway, it was kind of interesting. When we attended uh, my old church there, they were actually preaching on uh, John 3. The, the subject of the, the sermon was renewal, and the, the pastor, it was the college pastor that was teaching that, that Sunday. Actually, I think did a very good job with John 3 overall, except I think he missed the main point. Um, <laughs> that John, or the, the, the text on Nicodemus is absolutely not about renewal. If anybody would have been a candidate for renewal, it would have been Nicodemus. It, uh, Nicodemus was doing everything humanly possible to, to do the right thing with God. The trouble is he was doing everything humanly possible. Yeah, he, and even with Nicodemus, someone who was um, doing as much as humanly possible, Jesus told him, you need to be born again. What Jesus meant was that you needed a completely fresh start. There was nothing salvageable about human efforts. You need God's grace. You need to look to, to Jesus as your Savior. So we almost finished with Nicodemus last time. I just had one thing left in my notes. Um, <clears throat> and that is just kind of an outline of uh, this passage, just to kind of summarize it. And I thought that was actually probably a good way to, to start this week out. And then we'll continue and finish John 3 and hopefully get to the woman at the well in John 4 and get into that some this week. We won't finish that this week. But one of the, the things that I wanted to kind of remind us about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus is that Jesus, I think, is probably giving the clearest presentation of the gospel in the gospel of John in, in this section. Uh, there's a variety of ways to present the gospel. This isn't the only one, but it certainly is uh, an appropriate way to present it to Nicodemus. And so I wanted to kind of just give you an outline so that you could understand these uh, first 21 verses of J John chapter 3. Jesus begins uh, by ad ad addressing Nicodemus, you must be born again. Um, that's the, the only way to start. Uh, you need spiritual rebirth. Uh, you, you need... Uh, life from God. It's not something that you can produce by your own efforts, because if anybody could have done it, it would have been someone like Nicodemus. And in Nicodemus's case, this is something that was difficult for Nicodemus to understand. Um, and so Jesus spent quite a while explaining that you know, this spiritual new birth is necessary because of human inability. Nicodemus uh, was an Old Testament scholar. He should have seen that in the Old Testament. He didn't. Uh, Jesus went through Old Testament examples pointing to human inability. The next thing that Jesus uh, moved on to reveal is that the new birth involves looking to Jesus. And Jesus used the example of the serpent that was raised in the wilderness. If an Israelite was bit by a, a serpent, um, you know, the, the remedy that God provided was simply to look to a, a serpent on a pole. And Jesus is kind of comparing himself to that. You know, this is, you, know, you don't suck out the venom. You don't get medical attention. You look to God, and God provides a remedy. And, and Jesus is kind of the, the ultimate reality of that Old Testament type. <clears throat> Next, Jesus moves on to explain that God provided this remedy because of his love for a world that's very opposed to him. And uh, that was you know, introduced in John 3.16. We spent a little while looking at God's love there. The, the next point that Jesus moves on to God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. 
but um, <clears throat> to, to offer a means of salvation. The world was already condemned, and Jesus' coming only shows the condemnation of the world by the world's response to him. Jesus is coming to offer a means of salvation. The world opposes that uh, and, and shows that you know, the condemnation that it's already under is, is, is just. And finally, one's response to Jesus will demonstrate whether uh, God is at work. If, uh, if God is at work in their heart, um, the light will show that, and they'll be drawn to the light. If God is not at work in their heart, the light will show that their deeds are evil. Nobody wants to think that they're doing evil deeds. They would like to go on staying in the dark and pretending that their deeds are good. And so that separates you know, those who uh, have God at work in their hearts and those who do not. Uh, that, and that, that's the light of the gospel. And so that's kind of the basic summary that I would come up with at least for, for this section. And with that, I'd like to go ahead and move on to you know, the next section. We're going to go a lot faster through this because I think the point is a little bit more straightforward. So let me uh, begin by reading 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anan near Salim because the water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they uh, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the, uh, the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So the, the basic situation here is that John had a, a very considerable impact in his ministry. I don't know uh, how true this is, but some of the things that I... Uh, read actually stated that John's imp uh, ministry had a larger impact than Christ's during their, their lifetimes. Not not sure if that's necessarily true, but it does really underscore how significant uh, the impact of John's ministry really was. And three years after John's ministry, uh, you know, during the Passion Week, you know, people are still at talking about John the Baptist in, in Jerusalem. Some of the questions that Jesus is asked are about John the Baptist. <clears throat> John has a number of disciples, and so it wouldn't be surprising that you know, they might notice, wait a minute, you know, we're kind of getting smaller and smaller crowds. Some of our disciples are leaving and following Jesus. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of the, the basic situation, and we're looking at John's response to that situation. John says, you know, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. What, what John's saying is that he's been assigned a very specific task. His task is uh, to be the forerunner for the Messiah and to point to the Messiah. And as such, he should be delighted that, uh, that people are, are leaving his ministry and starting to follow the Messiah. Uh, and, and John is, is doing exactly that. With Jesus' ministry you know, now being active, 
John's ministry should logically be decreasing as people are going to the person that John is pointing to. Um, John's task, you know, kind of what he's he's pointing to from heaven isn't to build an ever-increasing ministry, and so it would be wrong for him to try to keep that ministry going when the the point of what he was uh, was given was to lead people to Christ. And there's there's a lot there for us. This is not a situation that's unique to John the Baptist. Um, Any Christian's efforts should ultimately be to point people to Christ. And uh, it would certainly be wrong for any Christian to pursue you know, a, a ministry beyond what God's assigned to them. Um, so John kind of uses this analogy of the friend of the bridegroom, and it would be certainly wrong for the, uh, the friend of the bridegroom, you know, maybe the best man in, in our uh, culture, to draw attention to himself in a wedding. His job should be to point attention to the bride and the bridegroom in, in a wedding. And we'll, we'll come back to that analogy in just a little bit. But I, I wanted to uh, kind of give an example of this. One of the, the better-known preachers in all of history is Charles Spurgeon. And one of the things I've consistently heard about Charles Spurgeon is that he had an uncanny ability to deflect attention from himself despite his fame and point him to Christ. I, I've heard a couple really great examples of it. The best one I heard, I... I was not able to locate, so I've got the second best here in my notes. Um, So let me just kind of read. This is from uh, Tony Campolo in a book called Connecting Like Jesus. Little more than a century ago, the British Isles were blessed with one of the best communicators of all time, the great Charles Spurgeon. So extensive was Spurgeon's fame that those who lived in and around London made hearing him preach a must-do event. Even Herbert Spencer, the prominent sociologist and somewhat infamous agnostic, took time one evening to go hear Spurgeon preach at his famous Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle. Following the sermon, Spencer's assistant asked him, well, what did you think of him? As though coming out of a hypnotic trance, Spencer responded, about whom? About the preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, his assistant replied. Still awed by the way in which Spurgeon had connected with him, Spencer answered, oh, Spurgeon, I haven't been thinking about him. I've been occupied thinking about Spurgeon's Jesus. And if you listen to, to some of Spurgeon's sermons, which are very accessible and very readable today, you'll, you'll really see that he was uniquely gifted at, at kind of pointing out Christ. In, and despite his fame, he, he did his best, I think, to, to draw attention away from himself and, and to point to Jesus. And so I think he's kind of an example of, of John the Baptist. You still can have a large ministry, but successfully point to Jesus. Somehow I think Spurgeon was able to do that at least with some success, perhaps not perfectly. I don't think any ministry is ever perfect, but I think it's uh, the the reason for the lasting uh, impact of Spurgeon's ministry. So coming back to John the Baptist's analogy of the bride and the bridegroom, I I would like to to unpack that. Um, I think it's fairly self-evident Jesus would be the, the bridegroom, the church would be the bride, God's people, the people that are, are leaving John and going to Jesus in this. And John the Baptist kind of has a unique role in that. He's uh, you're kind of bringing the, the two together in a sense, and in that way I think he's the, the friend of the, the bridegroom. <clears throat> uh, most of us were, you know, 
if you've been attending this church for very long, you, you heard the recent sermon series that uh, Tim did out of the book of Hosea. And we could go to lots of places in the Old Testament, but Hosea is all about God as the, the groom and his people as the bride. And you see that analogy again and again. And so you know, this is just kind of another way that uh, the Gospel of John is pointing to, to Christ's divinity. It would be almost blasphemous for somebody else to take you know, the position of, of God as the, the groom and his people as the bride and apply that analogy to a human being. It, it, John the Baptist really could only apply it to someone who was God in the flesh. Um, there, there is one other thing, though, that really kind of struck me, and th this is in a, a series of sermons that are in a, um, a volume by, by Boyce, and he's actually uh, drawing from uh, a previous pastor at the same church that he pastored named Donald Gray Barnhouse. And I, the, the stories are complicated enough, I thought it would probably be best to read them to you rather than to uh, try to relate them. But just to, to kind of think about what it means you know, for the church to be the bride and, and Christ to be the bridegroom. At the time of the First World War, there was a young aristocrat in England who was married and then went off to the trenches on the continent. The young bride wrote that she was preoccupied with uh, war work and with nursing at a certain hospital. She apologized for not writing more often, saying that she was spending long hours every day tending to the war wounded. Some time later, when her husband was coming home on leave, a friend who knew what was actually going on, said to him, if I were you, I would not write in advance that I am coming. I would simply slump over quietly. The husband did so. He went to the hospital where his wife was supposed to be working and found that those working there had never heard of her. She was not at her apartment either. Someone said, oh, she will probably be at the Ritz at a, a tea dance today. Uh, the husband went there and found his wife in the company of another man. In time, he found out a good deal more and was granted a divorce by the British authorities. The other story is this. At the beginning of the same war, in the western part of America, there was a young couple who had made plans to be married. Everything was in readiness. They had a small cottage, they had furnished it, the date was set for marriage. Suddenly, war was declared, and the young man, who was in the reserves, was called up to active duty. He was sent off to the Mexican border to train before being sent off to France. On the day before he was to be sent off for training, the young woman said to him, I know that it is not quite the date for our wedding, but you might be ordered overseas immediately. You might be killed, and I would much rather go through life bearing your name than to go through life always explaining that the man I loved had been killed in the war. So let's be married now. The next day they were married and for their honeymoon the husband went off with the troops, and the bride went home alone uh, to the little cottage. She was very lonely, of course, as you can imagine, and she longed for the day when she would again see her lover husband. Day after day, he wrote to her. He sent her gifts, a Navajo rug, some Mexican lace, some Indian pottery. Months passed, and the day came when she was so lonely that she sat down on some pillows in front of the fireplace, spread out the rug, uh, put the other gifts on a piece of furniture, and then began to read through all the accumulated letters while having herself a good cry. Suddenly, as she, she was reading the letters, there was a step on the porch, the door opened, and there he was. He had sent a telegram, but it was delayed, as telegrams often were in those days. He had arrived before it. When she saw him and realized that he was home, the young bride jumped to her feet, scattered the letters about, and even knocked over the pottery. 
A few of the letters fell in the fire, but she didn't care at all. He had returned to her, and having him, she had all. And Barnhouse just had a, a beautiful way of kind of applying this that I, I think you can probably already see. Dear friends, our Lord Jesus is returning, and he is going to find you and me in one of those two attitudes. Will you be flirting with the world, or, or will you be occupied with his love letters, his gifts, his work, and thinking of him? <clears throat> so I, I just couldn't resist kind of including that, that this is the... Um, one of the few times in the Gospel of John that marriage kind of specifically comes to the surface, and I thought it was kind of appropriate to include that here. Okay, I have not been keeping up on the slides. I apologize for that. Uh, the, the final part of this teaching, a lot of commentaries kind of regarded really as a summary of the entire chapter of, of John 3, because a lot of the themes that we'll see in your, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus are again here. One thing to kind of keep in mind is that within the commentaries at least, there, there is kind of discussion about who's actually talking at this point. Remember that Greek doesn't have quotation marks. And so it may be that John is kind of going into some fairly deep theology uh, here. It may also be that John the Evangelist, the, the gospel writer, uh, rather than John the Baptist, is kind of providing some last insights to kind of summarize this material. Uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Um, th this is inspired scripture, and whether it's the words of John the Baptist, or whether it's the words of John the Evangelist, or whether it's the words of uh, or whether it's maybe a, a longer teaching from John the Baptist that your John is kind of condensed into his own words, it's inspired scripture. We take it the same way, and it really doesn't change the meaning regardless of how you see it. I would probably see it, uh, by the way, just as uh, John condensing teaching. I, I think that's the most likely, but you know, all, all three possibilities certainly work. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God uh, sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. <clears throat> so John kind of begins with the difference between Jesus and any other teacher that's come before. You know, earthly sources you know, have sometimes at least some degree of knowledge of spiritual things, but that, that knowledge is always finite. You know, I, th I think you know, some of the great Old Testament prophets like Hosea, Isaiah must have you know, gone home after transcribing what God told them to transcribe and just kind of scratched their heads. What could this possibly mean? Um, they, they, they were given something, but they didn't understand all of it. Uh, you know, the eternal son's heavenly knowledge is infinite. He's been with God uh, from eternity through eternity. And so he has uniquely perfect knowledge of things, and that's what John is, is saying here. 
You know, why would you listen to someone with finite knowledge like me when you can listen to someone with infinite knowledge? And I'll, I'll say a little bit more uh, about that. And uh, John is uh, one to always point out irony when there, there's an opportunity to do so. Frustratingly, you know, given this your direct heavenly relationship from God himself, the, wor the world does not receive his testimony. No one receives his testimony uh, kind of in the, the way that John puts it. <clears throat> Whoever uh, receives his testimony sets his seal to, to this, that God is true. Uh, there, so there, there is a minority that, that do receive that testimony. Seal here, the, the word in the ancient world you know, has a, a couple different meanings, and it often would refer uh, to a, you know, a, a signet ring that someone might wear, and they would kind of put, put wax on a, a document, and they'd press that ring into it, and that ring would have a unique pattern. Sometimes it would be used to seal that document shut so that you know, it couldn't be open until the seal was broken. But I, I don't think that's the, the meaning of seal here. Another use that th these rings would have, if you wanted to show that a document was authentic, you might put a little bit of wax and dip your uh, signet ring into that to put a seal on it to show that it's from you and that it's not a counterfeit document. And, and that's the meaning of seal here. <clears throat> so... You know, by, by accepting what Jesus said, you're also accepting the truthfulness of, of God himself. Uh, you can find another example in the New Testament. If we go to 1 John, John is going to say the same thing, but from the opposite perspective here. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the, testimo has, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God uh, has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. This verse basically says the same thing, but kind of in the opposite sense. Uh, continuing in this section, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So the question that probably pops up here, the, the first part is relatively self-explanatory. You know, he that God sent utters God's word. And John gives the reason that you know, this person, Jesus, has the spirit without measure. And I think what's meant without measure is that the prophets received a measure of the spirit when they prophesied. Um, one thing that kind of comes to mind is a, an interesting incident in the, the Old Testament. You, re you might remember that King David uh, had expanded the kingdom, he uh, accumulated quite a bit of wealth, he had built a nice house for himself, and correctly he thought, wait a minute, why should I live in this nice house while there's still a tabernacle that God has worshipped in? Uh, shouldn't I build a temple? And so David didn't just set out and do this, he correctly approached the prophet, prophet Nathan and told Nathan his plans. And Nathan essentially said, well, that sounds like a great idea, do it. Um, and then Nathan went home and God came to Nathan and said, no, that's not my plan. I would like David's son uh, to build my temple. And so Nathan had to come back and then give God's word to David. And so that's an example that Nathan the prophet sometimes received the spirit and sometimes spoke God's word and sometimes he spoke on his own. Uh, 
you know, it would, would seem like a fairly reasonable idea to Nathan, but then uh, God corrected that. So with, with any prophet in the Old Testament, sometimes they were given words from God, they were given the Spirit within measure, but sometimes what they, they said would be their own words. Um, why would you listen to someone like that when you have someone who has the Spirit without measure given to them? That's uniquely Jesus here, and I, I think that's what's meant. Yes. Sure. Oh. Yeah, you, you, you certainly could be right. Um, it, the, whether he is applying to God the Father or God the Son, I'm not certain. Um, but you, you, you could be right there, and I, I, I could be incorrect in what I was, uh, uh, in the way I was interpreting it. Yeah. Um, I know that at least some commentaries will kind of go the direction that I did, but I will look into that more, and I will... Uh, if I, if I find anything, I will let you uh, know at the beginning of next week's lesson. Thank you very much for pointing that out. <clears throat> I, I did not catch that when I was uh, looking over uh, this, uh, this time at least. Thank you. Either way of looking at it, though, you know, it, it, whether Jesus is giving the Spirit without measure uh, uh, to, to his followers or whether Jesus is, you know, has the Spirit without measure and is teaching in that sense, the, the point would, that John is making would be the same, that you know, Jesus would be a superior teacher to go to and a superior teacher to, to listen to. And that's a, a very compelling reason for Jesus to increase and for John to decrease. John might be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but he's not the light. Jesus has perfect and complete spiritual knowledge. He doesn't just point people to God. He is God. <clears throat> the next thing that's said, you know, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. When we looked at John 3.16, we looked at five different ways that God shows his love. And one of them, you know, the one that most of us probably wouldn't have thought of if we tried to come up with a list on our own, is inter-Trinitarian love, and that is the love that you know, the Father has for the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit have for the Son and the Father. The, the, the Son would have for the, uh, the, the Father and the Spirit, the love that the, the members of the Trinity have for each other. And this love is very different than other ways that God shows love, because the love between the members of the Godhead is perfectly merited. Um, it would be wrong not to perfectly love a, a member of the Godhead because they perfectly deserve perfect love. Um, and, and so Jesus perfectly merits perfect love from the Father. It would be unrighteous, in fact, of the Father not to love Jesus perfectly um, or to love Jesus any less than he deserves to be loved. 
And of course, there's no unrighteousness with God. Calvin has a, a, a kind of a, a thought-provoking quote on this. The love here spoken of is that peculiar love of God, which beginning with the Son, flows from him to all the creatures. For that love with which embracing his Son, he embraces us also in him, leads us, or sorry, leads him to communicate all his, his benefits to us by his hand. What, what Calvin is saying is that because of our union with Christ, because we, we have been united with Christ, that love that Jesus deserves kind of spills over onto us, even though that we don't deserve it. And so when we, we see that, that deserved uh, love, we, we should always remember that we, we share in that even though that we, we don't deserve it because of what Christ has done in uniting us to himself. A reminder of what an astonishing privilege it is to be united with Christ. Um, not only has Christ paid the penalty for the sin we owe, but by uniting us to him, the love that Christ merits from God applies to us as well. This chapter concludes, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's a good summary for the chapter, but it's uh, very much in keeping with uh, the, the main point of the book. John kind of gives a, a purpose statement uh, towards the end of the gospel. It's at the end of chapter 20. There's one chapter that follows that. Um, but the, the purpose statement that, that John gives is, you, you know, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's main concern is writing, in writing is the reality of who Jesus is. He has introduced this in different ways. John the Baptist encountered him, Jesus, and speaking as a prophet, declared him to be the Lamb of God. In talking to him, some of his uh, first disciples saw him and declared, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Jesus attended a wedding with his disciples, and he revealed his glory to those disciples, who saw the fulfillment in that miracle of Old Testament prophecy concerning the bounty of the Messianic age. He fulfilled prophecy concerning the Messiah, um, when zeal for his father's house consumed him and when he cleansed the temple. And finally, he, was ex he has explained the way of salvation to Nicodemus. He explained the inability of humanity or, or the best of human efforts to ascend to heaven, and thus it was necessary for the Son of Man to descend and to make a way for salvation. And so that takes us to the end of chapter 3. Any questions before we, we move on? Okay, uh, chapter 4, there's a, a section that's verses 1 through 26. It's part of the section of the woman at the well. We're, we're certainly not going to have time in the 12 minutes I have remaining to uh, unpack all of that, but I think we probably have enough time to do kind of a quick flyover of it so that we can focus in on it next week. I'm going to read this section in its entirety because we're going to look at it together, and we won't go completely sequentially through it. Uh, as, as we look at it. <clears throat> now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through S Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, uh, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus 
weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would not have asked him, or sorry, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing uh, to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do, you ha- where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will g- give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem uh, is the but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship uh, what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called, sorry, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So I'd like to kind of get started by just sort of giving us an overview of of this. And I'd like to kind of start with uh, Samaria. And the kind of the, there's obviously some tension that you can see alluded to between Jews and Samaritans. And this goes back, you know, you know, 800 years in Israel's history, uh, give, give or take. I don't know the exact dates. But following Solomon's reign, when the, the, uh, the 12 tribes were united as one nation, <clears throat> Solomon's son Jeroboam uh, foolishly uh, kind of insisted on continuing kind of you know, heavy taxation and heavy conscription of people for work projects uh, rather than kind of lightening things up. And Ten tribes didn't want to have anything to do with that. They split off. Uh, there was uh, kind of civil war between two kingdoms from, from then on out. And so there was a northern kingdom that would be called Israel, and there was the southern kingdom that was called Judah with, with two tribes. David's line continued ruling in Jerusalem for the, the two southern kingdoms. 
the northern kingdoms, the kind of the, the larger nation with ten tribes, didn't have Jerusalem. And the kings there were more practical than spiritual. They thought, well, if people are going to Jerusalem, that's going to cause problems. For one, they're going to spend money there. That's not good for our economy. But they'll have spiritual connections to this other kingdom, and that could kind of weaken my, my claim to continue ruling. And so they decided it was not a good idea for their people to, to worship in Jerusalem, and so they started uh, worshiping in Samaria. And relatively quickly, the worship was centered at a place called Mount Gerizim. That's actually within view of Jacob's well. And so when the Samaritan woman is talking, she says this mountain, she's undoubtedly pointing to Mount Gerizim because you can see it from Jacob's well. And that's the, the center of Samaritan worship. Uh, if you read through you know, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, the southern kingdom, Judah, has a few good kings and a lot of bad kings. The, the northern kingdom doesn't get a single good king. All of their kings did evil in the, the eyes of the Lord. Um, and that nation very quickly kind of drifted into to poor worship at best and you know, worship of idols and sacrifices to, to Molech and you know, all sorts of wickedness of the nations around them very quickly. And God judged that nation long before he judged the southern kingdom. Uh, the Assyrian Empire came through and they completely wiped out the... Um, the northern kingdom. They didn't kill everyone. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But they uh, completely conquered it. Empires at that time, uh, lots of uh, empires before had started, and they were kind of starting to figure out how to do things, how to build larger empires. One of the problems that you ran into if you went through and conquered a bunch of nations and kind of brought them into your empires is the people in those nations remembered that, and they really didn't like you because of what you just did to them. And they had long memories. And so uh, an empire like that uh, would, would kind of be inherently weak. And the Assyrian king didn't want that. And so his strategy was with, when he conquered a region, he deported almost everybody, and he settled them in, in different parts of his empire. Uh, so they would be kind of a weaker culture among an Assyrian-dominated culture. And with the idea would be that they would be integrated into that. The Assyrians were not a particularly nice uh, nation to be conquered by. The, the northern tribes would have been sold off as slaves. They wouldn't have had much rights and probably would have very quickly been integrated. Essentially, none of the, um, the 10 tribes that were deported really remains separate to this day. Uh, and so when they say 10 lost tribes, it's not like you're gonna go through the jungle someplace and come across the 10 lost tribes. They have been uh, dispersed among the nations. A, a small fraction of the population remained behind, and then the Assyrians settled a completely different pagan nation there, a, a nation that had no knowledge of the God of the Bible at all. And so they intermarried with the few uh, Jewish people that were left in that area and kind of formed a distinctive culture. Now, the good thing is that they did keep a portion of the Jewish religion they continued to believe in the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, they couldn't go any farther with, in the scriptures than that because later uh, books of the Old Testament pointed to worship at Jerusalem and they couldn't have that, but they at least did have the, the first five books and they considered those holy. 
one of the, the interesting things is that there are still Samaritans to this day, and they still worship at Mount Gerizim. There's only a few thousand of them left. Um, but that, that religion has actually continued. <clears throat> um, the, the Jews that returned to, to Judea, kind of the southern kingdom to settle in and around Jerusalem, after the Babylonian captivity, um, they weren't as integrated into to Babylon as uh, you know, the, the 10 northern tribes became in, integrated into Assyria. Um, they saw, uh, in a, a factually correct sense at least, that the, the people in Samaria were half-breeds at, at best, and so they didn't want to have anything to do with them. Um, there was always kind of tension and animosity during the Internet Testamental period, was, that was a very difficult period uh, to live in. We don't have anything in the, the inspired scriptures from that pe period. We have books in the Apocrypha from that period. But um, <clears throat> when Alexander the Great kind of came through and conquered essentially the known world, he didn't leave the United Empire when he, he passed away in his early 30s. He uh, left his empire to his four generals. Two of those gener generals uh, were this, kind of the Seleucid group and the Ptolemy group. The Ptolemies settled, or they, they ruled around Egypt, and the Seleucids ruled a bit north of Israel, uh, Judea. And Israel and Samaria were kind of this no man's land between the two. Both of them felt that they had a claim to it. Both of them would invade it at different times. And so it was kind of uh, going back and forth between these two. Um, the, the Seleucids especially uh, believed in trying to Hellenize, trying to make, uh, trying to force Greek culture on everyone. And you know, the, the people of God were very intensely persecuted during this time. Um, and a lot of, uh, there, there were strong attempts to wipe out Judaism, although it certainly survived. Um, one of the, the later kings, uh, his name escapes me, it was John somebody or other. I don't have it. John Hieraclitus, I think, but I, I could be wrong on that. Who uh, ruled kind of the Jewish people, this is about 110 AD, invaded Samaria. Uh, um, he destroyed the city of Shechem, which is right where Jacob's well is. Sychar, the city that's mentioned here, is probably built near or on the ruins of Shechem. He sold all the inhabitants into slavery, and he destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans remembered that. And so the animosity that exists between the Jews and Samaritans isn't just on the Jewish side. It's very much a mutual animosity. And it's a very strong animosity. I, I don't think there's anything I could think of that we can relate with um, that, that would have been like the animosity that existed between these, these two peoples back then. And so when you, you get to verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria, it kind of jumps out at us because he didn't. Uh, the more religious Jews, and the, the language is very forceful in the Greek. Um, the King James translates it, must needs pass through Samaria. Um, the more religious of, of Jews would actually go around Samaria so that they didn't get Samaritan on them uh, by, by passing through Samaria. It was a longer route, but if you were traveling between uh, Jerusalem and Galilee, it would avoid having to, to be among Samaritans. Um, Jesus was taking the, the more direct route, as you can see, a route that would be something like that. Um, it, 
it does sound like a majority of Jews actually would put up with going through Samaria, but uh, there, there certainly was a fraction that would uh, avoid traveling through Samaria entirely. And so when, when it said that he had to pass through Samaria, I think it, John is kind of telling us something. He's, he's telling us that, you know, that uh, Jesus has a, a divine appointment with this woman. Um, looking at time, I think I'm going to need to wrap things up. So we're going to kind of continue to do this overview of the section next time. I'll just really quickly summarize all of this, and we'll uh, really kind of dig into the text uh, next week. Thank you. Testing one, two, one, two, test, test.